Bart, that was a lot of fast words. <laughs> Matthew chapter 5, let's go. Thank you all for that. I enjoyed that. You know, as I, uh, as I read through the Gospels, as I read through the Sermon on the Mount, um, as a preacher, as a teacher, uh, sometimes I like to read through and just look at how Jesus taught, the way that he did things, the way that he explained things, uh, the types of things that he used. And one of my favorite things, especially because I'm a preacher, because I, I teach, um, is, is how Jesus um, used everyday objects, everyday things in order to draw spiritual connections. Uh, I think it's part of the reason why I like to do so. I like to do object lessons and things like that because I saw how Jesus did it. Um, you know, like he would take, you know, tell stories about fishing, tell stories about farming, uh, tell stories about sheep and shepherds, um, about water, uh, about in the Sermon on the Mount you hear him talk about lilies and sparrows and all these different things. And he would use all these everyday objects and everyday occurrences to try to draw you in to help you then to make a connection to some spiritual truth, some spiritual point. Today, as we come to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, we see that Jesus is going to use two indispensable items, household items, to make a very important point. And those two items are salt and light. Let's look at verse 13. Let's read 13 through 16. It says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven." Let me ask you this question to start us off this morning. Let's just imagine for a second, let's just play a little game of pretend and imagine for just a second that somehow, some way, with the snap of my finger, everyone who ever attends First Baptist Church Fisherville suddenly was moved somewhere else in the country. And everyone in that instant was gone and First Baptist Fisherville was no longer a church on this corner. Just imagine that scenario for a second. And let's think about this. If that were the case, would anyone notice? If we were no longer in our neighborhoods, if we were no longer in our circles of influence, if our church was no longer here, would there be a negative spiritual impact on our neighborhoods, on our communities, on our families, on this area of Fisherville? If suddenly we weren't here, you know, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount has just concluded teaching on the Beatitudes in which he spoke about the importance of what it meant to be Christian in character. What were those godly characteristics that every single Christian ought to demonstrate in their life? And now as he gets to talking about salt and life, he is talking about how those characteristics are then put into action. How is our faith then put into action and he uses salt and light to describe it. And what I believe he's trying to make the point of is this. I think his emphasis is that our faith ought to have an impact. That our faith ought to influence both our personal lives and I guess what we could call our public life. Our life in community. Our life in relationship with other people. 
And so I think he's trying to make, to make the point that there ought to be two types of impact, two types of influence um, coming from believers. And that is one, to push back the darkness, and in the other way, to proclaim the light. And I think that's where he's going with this salt and light example. So the first thing I want us to see is that we as Christians must be people who push back the darkness, the darkness of sin, the darkness of evil. Jesus in verse 13 said, you are the salt of the earth. The salt of the earth. Now, what did he mean by that? You know, we have a lot of different uses for salt. We, we can we could make a lot of different analogies as to what he was talking about here. We could talk about the color and all these different things of salt. But if we thought about Jesus' day and age, the time frame that Jesus lived in, the most predominant use for salt, the primary use for it in that time was simply as a preservative. Now, we, we think of preserving meat. We think of preserving chicken, whatever. We go to the grocery store. We go to Kroger. We buy our chicken, our meat, our sausage, our bacon, whatever. We come in, we throw it in the fridge, we throw it in the freezer, and we can save that for weeks, for months, and not really worry about it going bad. Maybe get freezer burned, but it's not going to rot because it's in a freezer, right? Well, Jesus' day, obviously, they did not have refrigeration. And salt, as you likely know, was the most common method that they used to preserve meat. That the meat that they would harvest from their animals that they raised, they would then pack them with salt. They would rub them with salt so that it would kill the bacteria to prevent them from rotting. If they did not have salt, there would pretty much be no chance that they could eat all that before it went bad. It would rot. It would decay. Well, the truth is, is that we live in a world that has been rotting, that has been decaying ever since Genesis chapter 3. Ever since the day that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. You know, evolutionists have lied to us in many ways, but especially they've lied to us in this way. They've tried to convince us that, that humanity, that the world, that people are getting better and better and better, and things are improving and improving and improving. But the truth is that they're not. You know, we might have better things. We might have um, faster cars. We might have big airplanes. We might have advancements in technology. We might have great medicine. People might live longer, but the truth is the heart of man has constantly, continuously gone down and down and down. And as we've gotten all these greater things, man has just gotten better at creating new ways to sin. The heart of man is still deceitful and desperately wicked. And we see it in the fact that wars and murder and theft and adultery and perversions still exist. And so I think that's why Jesus is using this point of salt here. He's saying that we are the salt of the earth. We as Christians, we as a church are called to be a people who fight against sin, who fight against the darkness of sin, people who work to slow the decay of society. People who fight against the corruption and the perversions of God's design and creation. As man tries to twist things, we push against that. People who pursue godliness and righteousness and promote it. People who stand up for the truth. People who fight against injustice. We are salt that slows down the progression of sin, just like physical salt would slow down the rot that would happen in meat. You know, if you go into any doctor's office, if you go into any hospital, um, pretty much any public place now, um, it's likely that you're going to see little bottles of hand sanitizer around, around, right? You know, I make a few hospital 
visits just about every week for the church, and uh, usually right outside those doors, there's a little one of those little foam hand sanitizers, and they tell you to foam in and foam out. You know, you, you put it on before you walk in, you put it on when you walk out so you don't spread the germs. Well, we, in truth, as Christians, are called to be sort of like a hand sanitizer, to be people who are like a moral disinfectant for this world. Not that we cleanse people, but that we lead them to the truth, and that we see, we see to push against, to fight against sin as it seems to tries to move its way across and through our culture, through our society. We're to be salt, cleansers, ones who promote holiness and righteousness. So how do we do that? I wanted to be extremely practical today, so I thought of some ideas, some things that came to my mind for how we can really be salt in this day and age. And first of all, I think we need to understand this, that we must practice, you must practice your faith in your home. That if you're going to be sought, it begins in our homes, right? It begins in our, in, in the, in our, in our families, in our homes. And I think the first way we do that, if you're married, is by simply doing this. Faithfully love your spouse. If you want to be sought, faithfully love your spouse. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Paul writes it like this. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, later in the Sermon on the Mount, just down when you get to verse 27, when you get to verse 31, Jesus begins to talk about the need for purity and holiness in the marriage relationship, the importance of strong marriages. Now, why would Jesus do that? Because marriage is a picture of the gospel. It is a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. And what do we as Christians portray to the world about Jesus Christ and his people if our homes are messes? What do we portray about Christ's love for his people if we fail to love our spouse? And the other reason why I think that, that, that we need to remember this and we need to think about this, uh, specifically when it comes to husbands and wives, is this. We live in a world full of broken relationships, right? We live in a world that is trying to push on us variations, distortions of what God created when it comes to marriage and family. We live in a world where divorce runs rampant, where adultery runs rampant, where, where people are doing awful things. And, and how in the world can we as the church declare the truth of what God designed if our houses are messes? We can't. Why in the world do we expect a lost world to listen to us when we say this is what God created marriage to be if our marriages are wrecks? Can't do it. And so we must, as believers, focus on our homes. That is the first place that we must be salt, demonstrating to the world what a healthy marriage looks like, what a healthy family looks like. And I think the next point goes round, right along with it, that we must be people, people who shepherd our children well, who lead our children to love the Lord. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so as we seek to live faithfully in our marriages, we also ought to seek to live faithfully, leading our children to love the Lord, to serve the Lord, to know his word. We ought to make the gospel a part of our everyday conversations. We ought to be talking to our kids every single day about what it means that Jesus came to save us. We ought to be talking constantly about what his grace is and how we ought to show grace to others. We ought to be teaching our kids the Lord's commands on a regular basis. 
I mean, think about this. Um, if your kid was in school um, and, and your kid was struggling in some subject, um, would you sit back and do nothing about it? No. You'd probably find a tutor. You'd get alongside them. You'd work hard to try to help them to catch up. You would want them to do well. Or think about this. Go back to when your kids were really little, or maybe you're, already, you're there right now, and you're trying to teach your kids how to brush their teeth. And what if they just don't really take a liking to it? They don't want to brush their teeth. They want, don't want to do that. Do you, ever, do you just throw your hands up and say, well, it's your teeth. You're just going to get cavities. I guess you just have to suffer it. No, you pick up the toothbrush and you show them and you do it for them because you're trying to help them to establish those healthy patterns, right? And you don't want them to have their teeth drilled, right? And so if we spend so much time helping them with earthly things, shouldn't we be even more active helping them with spiritual things? with eternal things, we should. And with that said, let me add this too. Um, you know, we talk about parents shepherding their children, but children, here I think is how you can be salt in your home. Honor your parents. Love your parents. Respect your parents. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Who would agree with me that we live in a day and age that has lost a sense of respecting your elders? We see it on the news all the time. Respecting authority out the window. Children, you want to be sought in a community? Love your parents. Pray for them. Respect them. Honor them. Lead your friends to do the same. You know, the reality is, is that kids, your mom and dads fight battles for you that you don't even know happen. They, they, they have weights on their shoulders that you don't even understand. And so pray that God would give them wisdom. Pray that God would keep them from temptation. Pray that God would help them to understand his will. We have to be salt in our homes. But it doesn't just stop at our homes. We also must be, be people who practice our faith publicly. In Matthew 5.13, that first part of the verse, it says, You are the salt of the earth. And in verse 14, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Those are far-reaching terms, right? The entire earth, the entire world. It's not just our homes, but it's everywhere that we're called to live out our faith. And so let's think about some practical ways we can do that. Number one, I think it ought to be that we ought to work diligently. That we as Christians ought to be people who know what a hard day's work means, right? An honest day's work for an honest day's pay. Colossians 3.23 says, For whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Whatever you do, whatever job you have, you are working for Jesus, not an earthly boss. Knowing, in verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. In a world that, ste that, that steals and cheats and lies, um, in a world that looks for handouts, in a world that seeks to cheat the, cheat the clock and fudge the numbers and cheat on taxes, we as Christians must be people who work with integrity. We must be people who, who know what it means to work because we are working for the Lord and not for men. There ought to be a distinctive, positive difference between the average worker and the Christian worker. We ought to work diligently. Secondly, we ought to be a good neighbor. If we want to be salt in our communities, we need to be a good neighbor. I mean, how many of you have seen this, that, that so many people nowadays, um, when they get home, they open their garage, they pull their car in, and many times they'll even shut their garage before they get out of their car and they go inside? 
Anybody seen anybody do that? I have. And we have this kind of idea now that our homes are like our fortresses of solitude. They're our retreats from the world, and we want to get away from everything else. We throw up our big fences, and we don't know our neighbors and all these types of things. Uh, but the truth is, is that if we want the world to come to Christ, it begins. The, the closest place for that to start is on our street. It's with our neighbors. And so we need to know them. We, we need to help them out. We need to invite them over. I had a neighbor that was great at this. Um, his name was Mike. He moved this past year. And I hated when he moved because uh, he's the best neighbor we'd ever had. And, and I know the reason why he was the best neighbor I'd ever have is because man loved Jesus. And he talked about it all the time. And he talked about his faith. He talked about his love for the Lord. Um, and he talked about it with every single neighbor he had. And he was always willing to give a helping hand. Because it wasn't just his words, but it was his life that were a testimony to his love for the Lord. That he gave of himself. We need to be a good neighbor. Another way we can, we can live out our faith publicly is simply this, to vote. I think there's an election coming up this week, isn't there? I've seen a few commercials on TV, but I don't think I've seen enough. <laughs> you know, when we think of, when we think of um, workplaces and neighborhoods and our homes, we think of influencing small circles, right? Small things, small communities. Um, but as Christians, uh, we can be sought in a major way, in a big way, by simply participating in the privilege of voting. That we have the ability to influence what takes place in our city, in our state, in our county, and all the way up to our nation by the fact that we have been given the privilege in this country to vote. A privilege that many Christians in other countries do not have. And so we as believers ought not to waste that privilege. And let me just say this, and this might make someone mad, but as Christians, uh, we, we, need, we need not be ignorant when it comes to voting. We ought to sit down and to consider what the Bible says. And, and not simply to vote based on a party, but to vote based on Scripture. To, to consider what those, those candidates have to say and how that lines up with the Word of God. And to vote based on biblical values. Not to vote blindly, just based on a red or a blue color, but based on what the Word of God has to say. We must vote our faith. That's how we're sought for our nation. And also, lastly, I'd say this on the topic of salt, that we ought to be people who speak out against sin in all its forms. Who actively speak out against sin. You know, we as Christians and, and we as a church must never be people who sit aside and remain silent when it comes to sin in any form, whether that be injustice or racism or abortion or the destruction of the family or the destruction of marriage or abuses in power and government or immorality or whatever it might be. We must never be people who remain silent, but we must remain convictional about the truth of Scripture. You know, so, what, so far what I've mentioned sounds pretty peaceful. Be a good neighbor, go to the polls and vote, all these things. Work hard. That all sounds pretty peaceful. Um, but you know, the truth is, is that salt has a bite to it. Does it not? It does. Any of you ever been, um, you ever been like you sit down to dinner and you go to eat some fries or something like that and suddenly you realize you have a cut on your finger because of the fact that some salt got in the wound? It happened last week. We got done with church, and we went down to Zaxby's to get some food, and I went to eat me one of those fries, and I had a cut on my thumb I did not know about, but I soon realized it was there <laughs> because it started to sting because salt has a way of doing that. Now, salt didn't intend to hurt me. It wasn't trying to hurt me, but it had a way of exposing my wounds. 
And we as believers are called to be salt. And sometimes that's not going to be easy. Sometimes that's going to be painful. Sometimes it's going to require conflict, confrontation. Sometimes it's going to require that we're going to offend people because the gospel is offensive. Being salt requires us to speak up when we see sin. You know, um, I read a biography a while back about a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Many of you may have heard of his name before. He was a pastor in Germany during World War II. Uh, But he was a pastor who did everything that he could in his power to fight against the Nazis and to try to overthrow Hitler, the the things that he could do. And he eventually lost his life for it. Um, But this is what he had to say about the church because many, many pastors, many churches in that country in that day and age were not willing to stand up. They were not willing to, to take the risk. And this is what he had to say. He said the church was silent when it should have cried out. May that never be said about us that the church remained silent when it should have cried out. You know, the truth is, is that I think sometimes we prefer to be honey rather than salt. You know, honey tastes good, doesn't it? Sweet. Nobody, nobody complains about that. doesn't hurt at all, does it? But we're not called to be honey. We're called to be salt, which requires confrontation. Now, that doesn't give us the license to be rude. Don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean that we're, we're to be abrasive or to, we're to be, to be um, you know, to be mean. I mean, in, in, in Ephesians chapter 4, we're told to speak the truth in love. In 1 Peter chapter 3, we're told to, to, to confront others with gentleness and respect. In Romans chapter 12, we're told to repay, good, or to repay evil with good. And so even as salt, we ought to be civil and decent even when the other side is not civil and decent. We don't repay evil with evil. We pay, repay evil with good. And oftentimes I hear Christians say this. We, we say this little phrase. We say, we love the sinner, but we hate the sin. Heard that before? And we all agree with that, but we better make sure we live that when we say it. We better make sure that we honestly do love that sinner, even when we hate the sin. You know, it was, it was the late Supreme Court, Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, who said this, he said, attack ideas, not people. He said, some very good people have some very bad ideas. And so we as Christians, as salt, have to remember that when we do confront, that we ought not kick people while they're down, but instead lift them up and seek to win them to the Lord as we bandage their wounds and we show them a better way. I heard a story one time about um, Abraham Lincoln, and sometime shortly after the end of the Civil War, Um, An elderly lady came up to him and began to scold him about the fact that he was not more harsh with the Southerners than he was, that he should be be cruel to them and mean to them and put them in their place. And he responded like, like this. He said, why should I destroy my enemies when I can make them my friends? And his point was is that persuasion ought to have love in it as we lead people to want to, to follow our Savior. And so we must be salt, but then also Jesus tells here that we must be people who proclaim the light. Verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. And it's a similar idea, but it's just slightly different. You see, because I believe if being salt is to fight against the progression of sin, when Jesus called us to be light, he calls us to proclaim the good of the gospel. And so as we fight against sin, we then also point people to the God in heaven, we push back the darkness and proclaim the light. 
And so, and we, we, you know, because we don't, we don't want to just slow down the, the, the pro progress of sin. That's not good enough. Uh, we want to cure sin with the gospel. We want to reverse it with the power of Jesus Christ. Now, when we think about this, the physical earth, right? The physical earth does not emit its own light, does it? Doesn't do it, does it? Requires this thing called the sun. We know it from Genesis chapter 1. God made the heavens and the earth, and it said darkness was over the void. And then God said, let there be light, and suddenly there was light. And then later he created the sun, and we had light. The earth doesn't put off its own light. And the same is true spiritually. The earth does not put off its own spiritual life. Jesus Christ came as the light of the world. John chapter 8, verse 12. And then here he calls us to be the light, to be the ones that reflect the light, pointing people to Jesus. Now here in Matthew 5, 16, he specifically mentions good works. Look in verse 16. He says, in the same way, <laughs> let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so Christ commanded us to live with godliness so people would then see the difference in us. They would see our good works, and they would know that there's something in them that are different. But don't be fooled. Don't assume that just living a good life is enough and that you never have to open your mouth. Now, the gospel requires our words. Our good works alone don't win people to Jesus. Just being a good person, just being a good neighbor isn't enough to lead someone to Jesus. At some point, we have to tell them about the one who transformed our lives. We have to tell them about Jesus Christ and the work that he wants to do in their life. Over in Romans chapter 10, verse 14, this is how Paul wrote it. He said, And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And in verse 17, he said, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We are to proclaim the light as we share the gospel. But Jesus also gave a warning here. He gives us two commands here, be salt, be light. And then he gives two warnings that are really one and the same. Look back in verse 13, and let's just read through the whole thing again. And I want us to think about, look at the warnings. <laughs> he said, you are the salt of the earth, <clears throat> but... If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. Then here comes the warning again. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who, in his heaven, who is in heaven. And so what is the warning? The warning is this. Do not lose your influence. Do not lose your influence. And I think we could sum up the warning in, in two ways. There's, there's two temptations in front of us. A temptation that I think would be to become one of two types of Christians. And this is what I mean. I think the first temptation we have to be warned against is this. Don't become a Christian illusionist. And this is what I mean. I'm not talking about a Christian who can do magic shows and tricks. That's, no. I'm talking about a Christian who seems to know how to disappear. A Christian who seems to know just simply how to fade into society and never be noticed. Their faith never sets them apart from the world around them. You might even hear them say something like this, well, my faith is private and I like to just practice it in private. 
That's not what God called us to be. That's not what God called us to do. And many times, some of these Christians will even begin to take on worldly, worldly characteristics. They'll begin to live like the world because they, want to, they don't want to be ostracized from the world. Um, they don't want to be pointed out. And so they might cuss and steal and drink and, and, and run around and do all those other things just like the world did rather than living a life of salt. Now, why do they do that? Maybe it's because they're afraid of being rejected. Maybe it's because they counted the cost and they say, I just can't do that right now. Maybe it's some kind of spiritual failure, some kind of temptation that they cannot get over. Uh, maybe it's just a lack of passion to follow Jesus. Maybe it's a lack of discipleship. You know, there was a man by the name of Dave Kinneman that wrote a book called Unchristian. And he did a big research study in it where he surveyed a bunch of non-Christians. Um, and he asked one question. He said, how many of you know a Christian, know someone who is a, a Christ follower? And, and of the people that knew Christ, a Christ follower, of those non-Christians who said, I know a Christian... Only 15% of them said that Christian's life was any different than the norm. 15 out of 100 on average are the number of Christians whose lives look any different than their lost neighbor. Is that what we are called to be? To just fade right in with the world? Jesus said here, what was the warning? He said, what, is good, what good is salt when it's lost its taste? He said, it's no better than road dust. Throw it out and be trampled on. If we're going to be faithful to what God has called us to be, we must maintain our difference. We must be people who are set apart. Not people who are just like the world, but people who are distinct from the world. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. There's one author that said it like this. He said, we do not want a church that will move with the world. We want a church that will move the world. That's what we're called to be, to be salt, who live life distinct from the world, to be in the world but not of the world. But the other temptation we have is this, and that's to be, I guess, what we could call the Christian isolationist. You know, if you have one extreme where you have a believer who simply fades in with the world and looks no different, on the other extreme you have believers who seek to separate themselves from the world. They seek to think that this is the way, this is the path to righteousness. Let me just cut myself off from everything outside of my, the walls of my house and my church, and that'll be my path to righteousness. But I don't believe that's what God's called us to do either. These people might even honestly think that they are doing right. They honestly are in the Word. They're reading the Bible. Uh, they're seeking to obey His commands. But, but yet, this is what Jesus said in verse 14. He said, You are the light of the world. A city, on a, a city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they put it on a stand so it gives light to all in the house. Not called to hide. You know, not too far from where Jesus was at this point when he was teaching the Sermon on the Mount um, was a place called the Dead Sea. Now, why is the Dead Sea, why do we call the Dead Sea Dead Sea? Because there's nothing living in it, right? You know why that is? Because it's extremely high salt content, right? And the reason why that's the case is because there's many rivers. There are rivers that run into the Dead Sea, but there are no rivers that run out of the Dead Sea. And so as that water evaporates, whatever salt happens to be in that water gets left behind, and the salt level just goes up and up and up. And so nothing can live in the Dead Sea. It is all salt, but it is lifeless. Well, interestingly, in Jesus' day, there was a community of Jewish isolationists 
Jewish extremists, extremists that were called the Essenes. Now, they were the ones that gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were seen as, as, as zealots, really. Um, they, they were seen as people who were very extreme about their faith. And, and they thought that the path to holiness was isolation from the world. And so they completely cut themselves off from the world. And they spent their time studying Scripture and just obeying the Old Testament and doing it right there in their community. And they even called themselves the sons of light, interestingly. In some commentaries, they even said that they think Jesus was actually in this command talking specifically about this group of Jews and trying to make a little jab at them and saying, how do you think you're the light? Because you see, their faith was just like the sea that they lived next to. It was lifeless. They were all salt, but no light. They were all about obeying the commands, but they never showed the love of God to the communities that they lived in because they sought to get away from them. No, we are called to be salt and light. We're called to be people who fight against sin, who, who fight for the poor, who fight against injustice, who seek to improve our world, but also in doing so to take the gospel to the world and to seek to love our neighbor. Is If all we do is seek to live good lives and that's all we ever do, we are not giving people enough to find Jesus. It's like, it, it, it's like showing them just a hint of the light, but never really taking them to the source. You see, here's what I hear a lot. Here's what I get a lot is sometimes we gripe about the way our world is. We say, we just can't believe things are the way they are. I oh, mean, I just can't believe that, that stuff's going on like it is. And we complain and we gripe and we point the finger. Uh, but here's, here's a little something. I've I, I read this from a man by the name of John Stott. He said, one can hardly blame unsalted meat for going bad. It cannot do anything else. The real question to ask is, where's the salt? Where's the salt? Translation, if we wonder why we are in the state that we're in, the first place the church ought to look is in the mirror and ask ourselves, what did we do wrong that we have failed to impact our world with the gospel and we've allowed it to get to this place? Whose fault is it? Much of that fault, I believe, lays on us because we were not salt. We were not light when God called us to be and we failed a lost world and we allowed sin to begin to run rampant. You know, I heard a story uh, this past week about a, a man, a young man years ago whose name was Dave and he was a, this man was a, was, he was truly salt and light on his college campus. He was a young college student and um, he was a bold witness. And one day, a young man was brought to Dave um, to talk to him. And, and the young man had this to say. He said, Dave, he said, I came from a family that doesn't believe in the resurrection and all that stuff. He said, that's a bit much for us. But he said, Dave, you know, but we're good people. We're a fine family. He said, we're, we're, we actually go to church even. Uh, we love each other. Uh, we care for each other. We do good in the community. Uh, we're stable everything's going well for us. And he said this, he said, what have you got that I don't have? And this is what Dave said. He looked at the young man and he said, watch me. He said, I've got an extra bedroom in my house. Why don't you move in with me for three months? And he said, while you're living with me, he said this, he said, uh, he said just follow me around. He said, see how I behave. See what's important to me. Listen to what I talk about. He said, watch what I do with my time. And he said, at the end of three months, you tell me then that there's not something different about me. 
Well, the young man didn't take him up on the option of moving in his bedroom, but he did take him up on the option of following around and watched him. And it didn't take him long to realize that his relationship with Jesus was different. And the man came to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And the man eventually became a missionary. Well, here's, here's the question this morning that we'll close with. Could people say the same thing about you? If someone moved into your house, if your lost neighbor suddenly moved into your house and followed you around for three months, would they see a difference in you? Would they see something about your life that was different from theirs, that they would say, I want it? Would they hear from your mouth talk about the Lord Jesus that would make them say, that's why they're different? Not just because they're a good person, but because they have a relationship with a great God. Would they look at you and say, that person is truly salt, truly light? Or would you be like that survey we talked about of the 85 out of 100 who they would say, your life is no different than anyone else? Would you bow your heads, close your eyes, as we come to this time of invitation this morning. As we think about our life, we think about that question. Is your life any different? Are you salt? Are you living a set-apart life that is pushing against sin, fighting against sin? Are you light? Are you being the light of the world? Are you reflecting the light of the gospel to this world? Some in this room right now might say, Jeff, the Spirit of God is convicting me right now, and there's something in my life that is preventing me from being salt and light. I am like salt that has lost its taste. I'm like a light that's been put under a basket. You know, the good news is this, is that Jesus made the point there. He said, what good is it? How could the saltiness be restored? You know what? The truth is, is God can do anything he wants to do. And if we will lay our lives back at his feet, he can restore your saltiness. He can help you to live a life that is different, that is set apart from the world. And you might say, Jeff, I've been like a light that's stuck under a basket. The Lord can remove the basket. He can show you through the power of the Holy Spirit how you can be a witness in this world with your neighbors, with your family, with your friends, with your loved ones, with your co-workers, with the random people that you meet. This is a passage that is specifically for the church. You are salt. The lost are not called to be salt and light. We are. So how are you doing? Maybe today there's someone in this room who's never given their life to Jesus Christ. You've never come to the light of the world. You're living your life in darkness, and maybe you don't even realize it. The Bible tells us that every one of us was born a sinner, and that sin separated us from God. But Jesus, the light of the world, came here and lived a perfect life died a sinner's death on a cross and arose from the grave to pay the price for your sin, to be the sacrifice for your sin. He that knew no sin bore sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And how do we receive that gift? By praying and receiving Him as our Lord and Savior. Asking Him to forgive you of your sin and asking Him to become the Lord, the Master, the ruler of your life. Turning your life over to Him. Would you want to do that today? Father God, as we come to this time of invitation this morning, I pray for each and every soul in this room. I know because we are gathered in your place and you're right here with us that you are speaking to every one of us. 
right where our point of need is. And I pray that we would hear and that we would respond. God, if there be, some, be someone here today who is lost, if they die today, they would spend eternity in hell because they do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I pray that today would be the day that they would change that. That they would walk down this aisle and want to know what it means to follow Jesus and they would pray to receive Christ today. And if there are believers in this room who are no longer being salt or light, I pray that today you would bring them to their knees. And they would walk out of here changed. God, have your way with us as we come to this time of invitation. And it's in Christ's name we do pray these things. Amen. Just stand as we sing.